Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I'm always looking to help the Next Level Soul audience take their soul to the next level. And I've been able to partner with Mind Valley to present you guys with a ton of free master classes between 60 and 90 minutes covering mind, body, soul, relationships, and conscious entrepreneurship. Some of these master classes are taught by spiritual masters, relationship experts, best selling authors, legends in the personal growth and spirituality space, and so much more. So if you want to sign up for any of our free mind, body, and soul masterclasses, just head over to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the show, its host, or any of the companies they represent. Now, today on the show, we have Reverend Bill McDonald, who had multiple near-death experiences throughout his life, has lived an extraordinary life within spirituality, and many, many odd things have happened has happened to him along his journey. But one of the most interesting episodes in his life was the time that he had a near-death experience at Baba G's cave. And if you're not familiar with who Baba G is, he is the immortal saint spoken about by Paramahansa Yogananda in Autobiography of a Yogi and has popped up throughout the centuries to help humanity along its path. And Reverend Bill did not only have a near-death experience by Baba G's cave, but then was later saved by Baba G himself as per his explanation. So let's dive in. I'd like to welcome to the show, Reverend Bill McDonald. How are you doing, Reverend Bill? Well, it's a, it's a pleasure to finally be on your show. We've talked several times, yes. and every time you call me, I'm either just had surgery, having surgery, or in, or, or I'm recovering from surgery. So uh, it's kind of nice. It's been three weeks out of surgery, and, and I got surgery next week. So, hey, we found a middle spot. A little <laughs> window of opportunity to tell your story here on the show. I appreciate you. I really do appreciate you taking the time. To come on, I know you're in the middle of recovery and you're getting ready for another uh, surgery, which we, have, of course, wish you nothing but the best and send you good energy with all of that that you're going on. But uh, the reason I wanted to have you on is you've you've led a fairly uh, boring life, sir. Uh, not much going on. <laughs> not much, really. I mean, I don't even know why I asked. <laughs> uh, uh, it's just a normal. The normal mystical type stuff, you know, that everybody has. I mean, right? exactly, exactly. Yeah. So so let me so let me ask you for your first question. What was your life like before you had your first <laughs> near death experience? Okay, first near death experience was at eight years old uh, in San Jose in a hospital, and and so my first real spiritual stuff was happening when I was like a year and a half, two years old. Uh, I mean, I was making up my own forms of meditation. I didn't know they were a type of meditation. I mean, I do crazy stuff like I would, you know, a little kid, right? And I take it, I, I push my eyelids in so the 
the, the gaze would be on my spiritual eye. I didn't know it was a spiritual eye. I just pushed it and I said, oh, I see colors. This is really cool, right? And then I would have visits and guests coming into my world. And uh, I even had an alien abduction, me and my two sisters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was five years old. And I talk about that in my, my book. And uh, and I, I don't normally talk about those because, you know, but the only reason I even mention it is the fact that I had two sisters have the same exact memories I do. Mm-hmm. And when it happened in like 1950, the next day, we never talked about it until 2005 or six or some crazy number. I mean, it was well into our old age before we ever, we ever even talked about it. But, you know, so for them, bad memories for me was memories so you so you've definitely you you were living a, a an interesting life uh from the get-go essentially as far as your uh as far as your life and your spiritual life when was your first uh major near-death experience that you've that i can't i can't believe i just said your first major next <laughs> near-death experience yeah, yeah yeah it's a yeah yeah actually actually the one that happened when i was a child was interesting because when you're young facing death, it's a whole different thing. First off, you're not that far from removed from the, the cosmos. I mean, you're you're born, you're there, you're still getting your feet wet, and and next thing you know, you're you're fading out. But it, it's not scary at that age. It's like, okay, uh, let's start over. Let's let's redo. Uh, I was eight years old, and I was uh, literally deathly sick. And nobody was taking care of my needs and ignoring me and everything. And uh, the school sent me home. And then eventually people came and said, this guy's really sick. Take, anyway, by the time I got to the doctor, they basically told my my mother and my stepfather that uh, looks like he's probably not going to make it. You know, you're bringing him in too late. Uh, so they were prepared for the worst. They strapped me on a gurney at San Jose County Hospital. I was made a ward of the, of the county. And they took me off. They rolled me away from my family, and my family left. I mean, people think that's unusual, but back then, that was a normal. It's like, I'm going into the hospital. I ended up being there about a year and only saw my parents about 10, 15 minutes a week. Only visitors I had. And no school, no nothing. So being in the hospital back then in an old wooden building, you know, with the old wooden wheelchairs, you know, whole different experience. So my first night there, they, they took and they, I had, I had a kidney disease, real bad kidney disease. And, uh, and I had double pneumonia and my lungs were filled up in a pleurisy, they call it, you know, you got fluids in your lungs. And I had mumps on both sides and I was anemic. And there was about five other things that cascaded from the original mumps. Mumps started off and then everything cascaded from that. The whole immunity system went down. So they stuck these big, huge needles. I mean, I was young, they looked huge. And I've seen them now demonstrating when they show me needles, they're still long. When they stick needles into your back, into your lungs, they're big needles. They're fat, they're thick, and they're long. But they drained all this stuff out. That It, it had the, uh, uh, it, it looked like, uh, like applesauce coming out. It was just like that kind of fluid. And, and then they, put me in bed all by myself, turn the lights off. And I was left alone. Nobody said, how are you? How you feeling? Uh, you know, can we get you a teddy bear? Can we hold your hand? 
nothing. You know, it was like, we're done. Boom, there I was for the night, first, first treatment I got. And then that night's when something happened. The lights were off, it was totally dark. And first time I've ever been away from home by myself. And I'm laying there in bed and, and I'm surrounded, I'm engulfed in this womb of darkness. I mean, it's the way it is, it was dark. Uh, I don't be able to have a darker night. I mean, it was like, you get more light in your sleep when your eyes closed. It was like, and, and I'm laying there and I feel, I have a familiar feeling because by this age, I already had many uh, astral traveling events in my life, you know, where I believe in the body, astral traveling around, which I never thought twice about. I'd never talked to anybody about it. I just assumed, yeah, you spend night, you travel, right? You go check things out, right? And uh, you're not inhibited by the body and you can do these things, go through walls. Anyway, so I'm kind of getting that light feeling. I think I'm having an out-of-body experience, what I'm thinking. And I'm kind of floating up and the room is getting lighter and lighter and lighter. And pretty soon it's, it's about as light as it is behind me now. And then it gets brighter and brighter. It's almost like I'm in a cloud, you know, with the sun pouring in on me. And, and I kind of have an awareness to look down. I look down and there's this body of this eight-year-old child laying underneath me. And I'm going, well, I feel sorry for that body. Doesn't look too good. And so part of me realizes that's my body, but there's also the the older me in a, in a spiritual sense that knew that yeah that's just my body it's just my body it's not the real me the real me is this floating around here this is me and so i was at peace great peace and then i i was kind of aware of my need for comfort i mean i went into this night of darkness with a, a heavy heart because I, I was all alone i felt like nobody loved me they dumped me you know and i heard i heard the talk you know you ain't gonna make it and, and and nobody was there it was like boom put them in a room close the door right so i was needing comfort and just that thought that was all it took and it was like we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor And now back to the show. All right. You know, Italians and Mexicans, Cubans and, and Spaniards, there's a there's certain thing about mamas, you know, mama's hug, right? I mean, all of us grow up and it's mama, mama, right? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe in the other cultures, but I, I see in other cultures, but it's like Hispanic culture and Italian culture, it's pretty heavy. It's like, you know, it's never Papa. Who cares about Papa? So right. It's always that motherly. And all of a sudden, I'm having that thought, and it's like, it's like one million Italian mothers hanging on to you and just squeezing you, you know, and your grandma pinching your cheeks. It's one of those kind of hugs. It's just like, wow, I am love. I am loved. I am love. I'm surrounded by love. I consist of love. There's nothing but love. That was it. That was the entire world. It was just this love. And I'm just, I don't know how long, there, there's no time when these things happen. I mean, you've talked to enough people. Nobody, there's no time. I mean, it could be seconds. It could be hours. Who knows? But it was like, I'm not ready to go anywhere. This is, I'm just bathing in this. My body, my soul, my mind, my heart, 
my 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 spiritual being needed just to be hugged. And that's what I was getting. You know, it's just it was it was so beautiful. And and then I'm I'm looking at this like cloud all the way around me. It's like I'm floating in a cloud. And I can say that now, having flown in Vietnam in a helicopter when we fly through crowds at clouds, I got the doors off of my helicopter. So we're in the clouds and the clouds are kind of in the helicopter experience that most people don't experience is actually being in a cloud and touching it and everything. Oh, it's beautiful. I was I was in it once. It was oh amazing. Oh yeah. Yeah. Not great on the pilots, they get vertigo, but for for passenger it's great, right? So it's that same kind of feeling. It's like cloud. And then this cloud turned into this big panorama, meaning all the way around. Like a back then I called it like a movie screen. Uh because you know movies and stuff, technical stuff, but it was like projected. There was this I could follow all these things that were going on on this cloud, and every one of these things that were going on was, I realized, was me. At some point in the future, now older people have a near death experience. What happens? They have past life review. Well, at eight years old, I mean, what are they going to review? You beat up your, your you know. You beat up your teddy bear one day, you know, you didn't eat your vegetables. So what, what are you going to go? What are you going to review? Right. So I'm not getting a review backwards. I'm getting this panorama forward as it turned out from events 50 years. And, uh, and I'm watching myself in high school, meeting this beautiful lady, girl, who I've, been married to now for 50 something years uh but i knew that's the person i'm gonna marry and then i saw myself sitting in a, a helicopter i didn't know what kind of helicopter it was it looked like a, in my mind it looked like a tadpole you know it was a huey helicopter but they kind of looked like tadpoles i didn't nobody even invented a huey helicopter back in you know that 1953 maybe they were on a drawing board someplace but never saw one and i saw myself sitting behind a machine gun and i saw all these things happening and people shooting at me and and events happening and me making decisions and doing things. And uh, and then I go forward and I see myself getting married to this wonderful girl that I met in high school. And, and then I see my children and I see where I live. I see the jobs I have. I see all these events transforming before me. And I knew that number one, not too bright, but I finally feel, oh wait, I'm seeing my future. Therefore, I ain't gonna be, I ain't dying. I'm coming back, right? I mean, I can't have a future unless I'm still here. So uh, I kept seeing these two numbers tossing around, tumbling. And I've never seen a a five and a two. This was this was a, a two, two nine, twenty-nine. It was kind of flipping, but sometimes it looked like fifty-nine. The two would flip over. If you flip over two, it looks like a five. So and I, I and for decades of my life I didn't know what that meant because I thought twenty nine am I going to die at twenty nine? Uh, something happened and when I'm fifty nine, what's going? On? And then some astrologer in India goes, oh no, twenty nine, fifty nine. That's your return to your Saturn every twenty nine years and fifty nine years. You know, you you got Saturn coming and going. I thought, well, okay, but it still didn't feel right. As it, as it turned out a future near-death experience at months just before my 59th year was an eye-opener. So we'll talk about that later. 
So anyway, so there I was having all these supernatural visions. And the only way to say it's a vision. And it all seemed not mystical, not supernatural. It just felt like, yeah, okay. Like everybody sees 50 years ahead. <laughs> like, yeah, okay. Um, and then I just kind of faded out. And I, and I found myself back on my pillow. There was a lot more involved on that. There really was, but just because I got a lot of stuff <laughs> going on. But when I wake up on my pillow, meaning I was wake up spiritually, psychologically, I'm aware of I'm back on the bed because I think I was more awake in the in the visions than I was mm -hmm. laying in the body, and then great pain in my body and, and and disease and everything else. But I knew I had a long journey in the hospital. But I also knew that, yeah, there's light, at, literally, literally light at the end of that tunnel. And, and I got these other things I got to do and I got to catch up on. So that was the major thing. So I came home from the hospital and I'm home about two weeks and I'm sitting with my mother in the front room and I'm not in school, still sick. And we hear this choir of women, it sound like women, feminine voices singing. I mean, you know, these beautiful church music you hear, like, I don't know, I picture a choir of women singing in a church. That's what it sounded like. It wasn't Ava Maria, but it had that bounce to it. It had that energy to it, kind of like, Ava, it was kind of like that, almost like, almost like Catholic church music. It was just beautiful. And we were listening to my mother says, you got your radio on? I looked, no radio was on. No television was on. No record player was on. You know, and, and, and so we thought the neighbors were playing it. So we went outside and wherever where we walked, and we walked the whole block. The volume never went down. We could still both of us hear this wherever we went. It never changed volume. Went back in the house. We sat down, and my mother just goes, "It's got to be a choir of angels singing for you." And I believed it at the time because it's like, and then it took about an hour. And then it just faded out. A few days later, um, I'm sitting in the house. I hear the screech of a car. Boom, I hear a bang. And I go out in the front of my house. And uh, there's my uh, poodle. I had a poodle dog. It was a, a miniature. And uh, so it was a small poodle. And it got hit by a car going about 40 miles an hour. And it got bounced in the air and it landed. It was just laying in the street with a tongue hanging out, blood dribbling out of the corner of its mouth, blood coming out of its ear and uh, whimpering. Oh, I mean, it was toast. It was a goner. It was flat. But I wouldn't accept that. I go, no, 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 no. I go up and I pick it up and I bring it back into the house. Now, I noticed that you got self-realization fellowship books and stuff behind you. So there's a chance that maybe you'll understand when I'm talking about recharging exercises that the mm -hmm. Self-Realization Fellowship teaches. And they teach it as, as a way to prepare yourself for meditation. You get your body charged up with energy. You know, you do this dynamic tension, you know, and you visualize energy. And, and, and that's great. Everybody accepts that. What they don't realize, and at that age, I had the concept that, well, if I'm pulling in energy in here and I'm doing this, I'm a dynamo. I'm a battery. I... I can release this energy to heal. Crazy idea, but it, it, I was nine years old, and this a year later. 
at nine years old, I'm thinking, no, I could take that same energy. So I did. So I tightened up and, and I just put my hands on this dog and I just focused on energy coming in through my crown chakra and uh, through my spine and then out my arms into my fingertips. And I visualized light and love and healing energy going through my fingers. And I put my hands on the dog and just kind of did this. And, and it was like, he was electrocuted. I mean, he, all of a sudden he jumps up and starts, you know, cause like he got electrocuted. Like you could hear that, you could hear that snap from electrical current. It was like, even surprised me. And it ran around. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Lived another four or five years. Never took it to the vet. Was good to go. So that's from getting hit at 40 miles an hour and flattened to. Wow. So people ask, well, did you get changed by the near-death experience? I don't know. That was an interesting side effect, though. So then I realized, oh, there's, there's energies that we can use for good. There's energy we can use for healing. And uh, so then it went on to uh, lots of things. That, lot, what was interesting was a lot of stuff that happened in my, almost, almost everything that happened in my life for the next 50 years. Everything was, ah, I, I know what, just before it gets there, deja vu. Everything was deja vu. It was like, no. So when I went to Vietnam, all these guys, aren't you scared? You know, the rockets are going up. I'm getting shot. My helicopter's crashing. I go, no. I'm good. I, I saw I the movie. It. Yeah, I've seen it already. I know I survive. You know, I'm, you know, I might get wounded or scratched or something, but I know I survive. So, so supposedly I was this big hero in the war and I got distinguished flying cross, bronze star, purple heart, air medals, all this stuff, right? Nah. Medals are for heroes that were scared. They deserve them. They did it. They were scared, but they did it. Me, I knew nothing was going to happen. I could walk on the battlefield. There'd be explosions, bullets going by, things. That I just did what I had to do because I knew it wasn't my time. I've, I've been there. I see how it ends. Right. So anyway, so that's my first near-death experience. That's how it kind of affected me there. Now, did you... Um... When was your first or, or, or most intense uh, adult near-death experience before you go to India? Because I want to talk about India after. Well, I had two near-death experiences, and uh, one of them is in India, a second one, just before I'm 59. Remember that? 29, yeah. 59. And then the other one happened uh, years in 2011 when I was at India had a heart attack, came back to America, and then had open-heart surgery. And during that surgery, I appeared in a, in a duplicate body in India, which is an interesting story. And I had experiences there in a flesh body while, I'm being, while my heart is stopping. I'm being operated on seven hours. I'm in India having this experience. And that was a crazy one because people go, yeah, sure. Yeah, no, no, it was a dream. Yeah, okay. So... Uh, the second one wasn't that difficult. Second one deals 
Well, hold, on, hold on, hold on, stop, slow, 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 slow down for a second. Let's go back to that whole, I was in a flesh body in India while I was having a heart surgery. You okay. you, you, you pass by that like it's nothing. It's not nothing. Well, I, haven't, okay. I haven't heard that story before. But, you know, and for everyone listening, that concept is very yogic in, in, in sense. It's it's something that the yogis have been able to do, have been two places at the same time, two different bodies at the same time. Uh, it's spoken about an autobiography of a yogi. It is it is kind of common knowledge in that eastern uh philosophy uh so but for a westerners it sounds a little off so i just love to hear what was the experience that you were going through during that that seven hours all right so let's let's give you the full immersion first off in that happened in 2011 in 2010 when i was in india staying at ashram i'd go over to india i'd stay three four months <laughs> i was i wasn't just a visitor i mean i'd stay really block off some time. And the guru I was staying with at the time said, I want you to go out and get a naughty N-A-D-D-I, a naughty palm leaf reading uh, done. And I said, I don't believe in fortune telling. He says, oh, no, no, this is different. This is different. And I said, no. And I said, no, 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 this is different. You, you need this. This will help you on your next stage of, of where you're going spiritually. And I'm going. So he told me about what it was because I had no idea what it was. I'm thinking you're reading your palms or something. And, no, uh, 2,500 to 5,000 years ago, these 18, I think there was 18 rishis, these holy men, sages, they sat down and they channeled the lives of future people going to be born over the next several thousand years, you know, thousands of years. And they would write stuff down. And it was written on a palm leaf. You know, the hard part of the palm. They take the frongs off. And then they would somebody would scribe it and engrave it. Then they'd shellac it. And it would last for, you know, a few hundred years. And then it deteriorates. Somebody had to redo it. So consequently, some have been redone a few times, which lends itself to errors just by the fact that somebody else is redoing it. So I'm told that I'm going, yeah, okay. So somebody 5,000 years ago or 2,500 years ago, has written one of these for me. Yeah. If you're supposed to have one, you'll have one. And uh, the first time I ever heard about these was from somebody that used to be in SRF and he formed his own group, Ananda, uh, Brother Kriyananda. He wrote a book about these things, prophecies and things and stuff. And at the time I'm going, yeah, okay, this is cool. I'm not much into it, even though I'm a new ager and a lot of neat stuff happens, but I'm not, I don't chase it. I'm not, I don't need to know who I was in a past lifetime, what this is, what that means. I just, I'm very childlike. I just enjoy. Oh, that happened. Okay, that's cool. All right. So in this reading I had, and in this reading is interesting because you go in there and you don't tell them any information. You just give them a thumbprint. And for your man, you give your right thumbprint, woman, a left thumbprint. And that's all they have. You can put initial or number, whatever you want next to it, so they don't they know who, who to call in. And so I gave it. I went to this place, and about three hours later, they called me in. Now, some places, they may not find that for six months or or, or, or at all, you know. So, But I was going to sit there until they found it, which is really crazy because, you know, it could take months, you know. Right. Hey, the guru sent me down here. supposed to get it done, so it must be here, right? So, I mean, because... These things are stored all over India, like about 20 different places. So you may go to this place and and they don't have yours. It's in Delhi and you're in Pune. 
You know, it's like, what? I All I was going, all the odds were against it, right? So I go in there, I said, I'm pretty sure the guy calls me in. And, and, and then he pulls out these, they look like Phoenician blinds. They're a stack. And he'll, he'll ask you a question. If you say no, he puts that one wide. That's not you. And you go to the next one. So this was on about the seventh one of this bundle. And I kept saying, no, it was close, but you know, no. So he finally goes, your name start, your name is four letters long. Well, my nickname, the name I go by every day is Bill, right? So I'm thinking, William on the, yeah, okay, I'll give him that. Okay, it's a good guess. Four letters, Bill. Yeah, I said, okay. He says, it starts with B. And I go, okay. He says, it's B, or whatever. They, they mispronounced it, but it was like B-I-L. He spelled it out, right, phonetically. <clears throat> on this thing, it's it's all about sounds. It's not so much in English. I didn't know that at the time. And he says, so your name is Bill. He says, and your father's name was, meaning he's implied that he's no longer around. And your father's name was also the same exact name as yours. Well, I'm William Hector McDonald Jr. My dad was senior. So it's exactly the same name as mine. So when he says, you had the same exact name as your father. I thought, well, that's pretty good. What are these guys on a Google search or something? What's going on here, right? So then he goes, and your mother's name is, and they blew it. They didn't have to say Marcella, you know, because it's kind of Italian sound, you know, Marcella. I finally figured out what he was saying. I go, yes. And uh, and they said, so both your parents are dead. Yes. And uh, I didn't know my father was dead till just a year or two before that. He died in 1973 in this 2010 uh, I never knew my dad. So I finally found out he had died. So I didn't know that information before, just short time before I walked in there. Right. And then the guy goes, in order for you to know, this is when you're supposed to have your reading. This is the right time. I'm going to give you a piece of information. If this is correct, then we're going to go ahead with the reading. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. He says, you recently worked on, he says, he says, this is written here as a play, but this is written thousands of years ago. He says, and then it's the guy that's reading it, this Google guy goes, my intuition says you recently worked on a movie. And I go, yes, three weeks before. And, but not as an actor. And I go, that's true. I actually helped inspire the ending. I helped with the ending of this movie. And, um, but nobody at the ashram knew that. And had I been in there the year before, it wouldn't have made any sense. And had I been in there a year later, it would have been not recently, no. You know, So it was like, okay, that's the right time. Then he goes, your birthday is March. And then they kind of pause. He goes, between 14 and 16. Is that correct? I go, yes. And then he goes, the 16th. Okay, okay, that's pretty good, March 16th, okay. And 1946. He says, well, we're unsure of the time you were born. We think it's between 1 o'clock and 1.30 in the morning. Now, here's a funny story on that. On my birth certificate was a guess. They knew it was between 1 o'clock and 1.30, and they think they put down 1.10 or 1.15 or something, right? I didn't even know what the right time was. These guys on the reading didn't know what the right time was. 
The gurus who did this thing didn't know what the right time was, and they all took a guess about 110, 115. And they put that down, and I think they went 110 and eventually 115. They took a guess. I said, oh, their guess is as good as mine. They probably know more, right? So I'm thinking there's no way they could have gotten that. And it was the same problem I had on the real birth certificate. So then he goes, and your wife's name is Carol. Girl, my dreams, right? Girl, my visions. I go, yes. And you're still married to her? Yes. You've only had one wife? Yes. You got two children, a boy, then a girl. That was true. And then he gave some details about my wife going to one of the best universities. And I'm going, Cal Berkeley. So I, I don't know if that was considered one of the best universities. My wife would argue with me, but I said, okay, I'll, you know, I'll give you that. So it went through 40 different questions, answered yes to all. You know, you write books, you're currently writing a book about you, you know, about the guru's ashram you're staying at. Uh, you wrote a book about your life, blah, blah, blah. You work spiritual books. You give lectures, you give, all that stuff was right on. And then it goes, and you got basically two gurus. Oh, really? And uh, so, and and so they gave me that, and uh, was Babaji, which nobody could be a direct disciple of, but they said Babaji, and uh, and then this guy was with, you know, kind of like a a live version. So. Then I thought that was the end of the reading. They gave me a bunch of stuff. And I took out my wallet and I was going to pay him. And the guy goes, no, 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 no. That wasn't the reading. That's just the index card. So now we can pull up and do a reading on you. I go, what? That's just so we know we got the right guy. So that was bells and whistles that I thought was the reading, and it wasn't. So six hours later, I go upstairs, and I got two interpreters, because it goes from one language that this thing's in. And he reads it. This other guy understands that. And he gives the language to this other guy, and, that, and then this other guy gives it to me in English. So, I, okay, this is going to be fun, right? So you might miss a little in translation, you know? So it's like, okay. So they go, and they gave me a past life reading. They took one past life that was significant, that was affecting me in today's situation. Wasn't necessarily the last one or an order of anything. So they picked one and said, you had a former lifetime, a significant lifetime in Sri Lanka, what is now Sri Lanka, Salon, or what, what word the title was it before Sri Lanka, but anyway, but you were the senior monk at an ashram run by the guy that you're presently staying at his ashram. You were at his ashram back then. And, and then the, the, the guru that sent me for this reading told the interpreters, uh, in a note or telephone conversation, he says, I want to know what his worst sin was. So so basically, I go, this could be great, because I've seen people leaving that room earlier during the day that were crying, you know, one guy beheaded a bunch of people, somebody burned somebody alive, somebody was an adulteress and a, and a, and a, and a, and a, a crook and a criminal and died. I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff, right? So I've got my worst sin ever. I go, okay. So the guy says, okay, I, I was told to give this to you. I'm going to tell you. Your worst sin ever. You were at the ashram. The guru was a married man, had a beautiful wife, and you had a thought how beautiful she was and you'd like to have her. And I'm going, that's it? Did I do anything? No, it's against your vows. Did I say anything? No, it was against your vows. 
but the guru read your mind and you were cursed and kicked out. <laughs> I go, what? And then your mind got really crazy. Anyway, so then you spent the rest of that lifetime wandering back on the mainland on India and on the, the Ganges River, the last, day, last moments of your life, according to the reading. Makes great story. The last moments of life, I'm bathed in the Ganges, I'm going to water, and I come up this blazing light, like sunlight right on top of me. And it's the light of Lord Shiva. Now, you can't see Shiva if you're alive. Only if you're dead, right? So there I am, being bathed in this light of Shiva, and I instantaneously become this rainbow, like a, like a filament of rainbow colors. And I just, whoosh, I'm gone in this rainbow light. And then according to the guy doing the reading, which makes great fiction, makes good storytelling around a campfire. But basically they said, this is how we read every one of your last 30 lifetimes. As far as we can go, every lifetime you ended in a rainbow body, and yet you keep choosing to come back to pain and suffering over and over again, forgetting everything you, who you were, what you were, and you come back time and time again to walk and tread this earth to help and assist others. And I go, yeah, okay, fine. Great story. So it went on, and then they went on about telling me what happened before I walked in there. Everything happened from birth to the time I walked in there. And that was 100% accurate. And I'm thinking, how do you know all this stuff? You know, sickness, you know, army, all this stuff. So he knew everything. So it's kind of given credibility to his reading my past life. And I'm going, nice. He says, okay, now let's read the future. He says, now your future's not very long. He says, this is like set in stone. He says, well, we only see about it. This is 2010. We only see a decade. I go, really? 10 years? 2020? He says, 2020, you're either going to die or Shiva or Babaji is going to ask you to stay. It's not your choice. If you stay, it's to work, not for you to, you know, play, glory, write more books, fool around, watch baseball games. You know, no, none of that. In other words, that's, that's your choice. But 2020, there's something going on. If you're going to leave, that will be 2020. So imagine 2020 rolling around. Anyway, that's another whole story. So anyway, so on the predictions that they made for the future of those 10 years, everything except my death happened. Everything they predicted. I mean, they predicted some really crazy, weird stuff. And one of the things they predicted was at a certain date in the future, I was to travel to southern India, and I was supposed to go to this special temple, and it's sitting at the foot of some hill, mountain place. Uh, and I was supposed to, when I get there and recognize the place, I was supposed to take a journey and walk uphill two to four hours, whatever it took, walking up this hill. And at the top of this hill, waiting for me would be the Rishis. And they would impart knowledge. And the guy goes, that's a strong word. He says, all they're going to do is awaken. They're just going to open the door for you. You already have this knowledge. I'm going, yeah, okay, great storytelling. So anyway, so I'm going to get there. So anyway, that was the background. Now, the next year I come, I have a major heart attack. A lot of beautiful things happen. I see Riteshwar, I have a vision of him. Things happen. Just anyway, We'll skip all that mundane stuff. We go straight Come back to the United States. I end up in a hospital in Sacramento, California. And I'm rolling in the operating room for a quadruple bypass, open heart surgery. 
And the doctors tell me as I'm laying naked on this steel, stainless steel table, butt naked, freezing my butt off. And I've never been in a hospital room. They don't have the temperatures up because they don't want bacteria to grow, right? So it's always cold. It's in the 40s, 50s. I don't know what a temperature actually is, but it feels like it's freezing cold, right? I mean, you can see me. Here's California autumn day. It's going to be about 80 out there today and Marty bundled up, right? So I'm laying there and I'm asking the doc. I said, okay, doc, what's going to happen? He says, well, I'm going to give you a shot. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You're going to go unconscious. Six to eight hours from now, you'll be kind of coming out of it. We'll be through with the surgery. Uh, and then I'll pull you out of that, that stupor when I think you're, you're stabilized. I said, well, okay, so what are you actually doing? He says, well, we're going to, <laughs> here's bedside manner. We're going to cut and rip open your chest. And it shows me this, this device that's a, it looks like pruning shears, you know, click, 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 and, 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 you know, cut your ribs. And we're going to hold this thing open. He says, and then we're going to cut and, and we're going to harvest some arteries from your legs. And we're going to harvest, you know. Look how horrible bedside manner this guy has. He's giving me the whole horrible. thing. Horrible. My eyes are getting bigger, right? And he, <laughs> says, he says, and then once we get all that stuff harvested, ready to go, he says, then I'm going to stop. I'm going to shock your heart and stop it, or whatever they how they were stopping. I can't remember. They shock it and stop it. I, I don't think know. so. Yeah. Somehow they stop it. So he says, I'm going to stop your heart, but I'm cutting your arteries and they're going into this heart lung machine. And we're going to pump blood through that and oxygenate it from this big thing. So you don't have to breathe. Your lungs will be shut down. Your heart will be shut down. You're going to be artificially kept alive by this machine's going to pump oxygen into you. So I look at the doctor, I go, Doc, if my heart's not beating and I'm not breathing, aren't I dead? And he laughed. He goes, oh, well, technically, well, you know, we're... And so that was my thought. I'm going, no, they're killing me, right? <laughs> they're going to kill me and then keep me alive on this machine. You know, the, the flesh and blood's going to be kept alive. Mm-hmm. So I get the shot. Okay, the story's coming now. I know it. Never let an Irishman, never lead him with a leading question. So there I am, gives me a shot. He goes, count backwards from 100. I get to about 96 and darkness. Remember that dark darkness I had as a child? It's same darkness, except all of a sudden I'm standing in my flesh and blood body in a, 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 a patio area, square. You know, it's all cobblestone and everything, but it's, I'm looking right at a temple and it has it has this bull out there, you know, outside the temple. I go, that's the Shiva temple. It's got the bull, right? You know, um, and I look around and people are bumping into me and I feel them and they look at me and they feel me, they see me, I hear them. And then what's the first thought I have? Well, before I got here, I had no clothes on. So I kind of take a look. Oh, I got clothes on. So I'm a modest astral traveler. or uh, So I, I I replicated whatever I was fully clothed. So I don't know if that's my imagination or what, but I wasn't naked. I'm sitting here fully clothed. And I got sandals on. And I'm looking around. I go, what was the instructions I had the year before? When you get to this temple, and I knew it was that temple, 
even though I couldn't remember the name of it. And, it, and I didn't, you know, read the name. I, but I knew instinctively, that's the temple. And I look up and there's a, a small path going up this hill. And there's some pilgrims walking up there and stuff. And I'm going, I got nothing better to do. The guy told me six to eight hours on beyond. I might as well take a journey. Why question this body I'm walking around in, right? I mean, it's hot and sweaty. I mean, I got sweat coming down. Uh, I'm feeling the up, uphill grade. Uh, I don't feel myself breathing. That's the only difference. I, I, don't, I don't feel like I'm breathing. But I am moving, and my feet are moving. The body is functioning. And every once in a while, my body would have movement inside the chest. It was like there was hands and instruments and things going on. It was like there was surgery going on inside the body. It was like, oh, I could feel that. There was things going on, right? So I, about two, two hours, whatever amount of time it was, I, I get to this rising at the top, and there's this grove sitting there. And sitting around are about 18 guys or so, plus one. And they got this, it's like Jamaica, all this crazy hairs, you know, and mm -hmm. braids, weird stuff, weird beards. Dreadlocks, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's all that kind of weird stuff. I'm going, yeah, I got to be these guys, right? Who else could, you know, and all sitting there on logs. They're on rocks. They're standing. They're, they're fooling around. There's a campfire there. And there's a mystery person or two there. But also joining this group was this guru that sent me to get that reading, right? He was there. And I looked at him and it's like, you know, what are you doing here? What's going on? And so he looks at me and he says, you can, you can skip a beat or two, but don't give up heart. What do you mean? Don't give up heart. <laughs> so said it to me a couple times, and so I'm I'm there, and there's a part of me that just says that body was so ravaged with pain. That body that I left was in such bad shape. I mean, that was like my tenth, eleventh, or twelfth heart attack. Can't remember which. It was in bad shape. I mean, I had eight stents and everything. I mean. It'd been down that road before. It was like, you know, this is pain in the butt. So there was a part of me that just wanted to go, you know. So then this beautiful female voice comes up. The clouds, remember those clouds? The clouds kind of roll on this hilltop a little bit. And and then I hear this voice coming from this cloud, and this woman's voice goes. And it, it sounded like, and, and, and this is a spiritual story, so it sounds terrible to say this, but it was a very sensual beautiful feminine voice sure my gosh it was like i'm picturing this 21 year old beautiful virgin lady beautiful angel, gorgeous genius, sure. gorgeous you know and i hear this voice says bill just give it up just let it go just stop you've done enough you've done what your karma says you're supposed to do you don't have to do anything anymore let it go. I'm going to give you peace, bliss, joy, and endless love. Just let it go. Just stop. Stop the heart. Stop the breathing. Just let it go. And I'm going, wow, this is pretty good. Yeah, you know, it's tempting. I'm going, yeah, yeah okay. You know, it's so then this guru guy, the guy was at the ashram, right? he goes, Peter, he goes back to this. <laughs> 
uh, skip a beat or two, but don't give up. Don't give up heart, right? Don't give it up. And I go, why? She's promising me bliss, joy, love, pain, painless, you know, just beautiful. What are you promising me? He says, you come back. You're going to experience more pain than you ever had in your life. You're going to have to learn to deal with pain because before you get pain and you just bliss out, dumb with pain, you know, boom. But now that gift is gone. You're going to have to learn how to handle pain like a regular person so you can teach others. I go, sorry. So give me the straight. So I stay, I get great pain. I leave, I get no pain. Oh, this is a no brainer. <laughs> he goes, no, 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 no. He says, no. And you're going to suffer more and more things are going to happen to you. It's like surgeries, things, stuff. It's going to be just nonstop because you have to do this to teach others. And I'm going, what? So, and then he finally goes, no, look at this. And pretty soon those clouds, remember those clouds were filled with visions of the future? These were just images of faces. Children, even animals, old people, young people, teenagers, 30s, 40s, Indians, Mexicans, Irishmen, Blacks, Hispanics, didn't matter what they were. It was thousands and thousands and thousands of faces. And this guru was saying, if you don't go back in this next decade or so, all these people will miss something. You know, they don't have to have it. But they will miss something, a gift from you. Even if it's just a smile or understanding, a healing spiritually, mentally, physically, spiritually, maybe just some kind words. Maybe you'll stop a suicide. Maybe you'll befriend somebody and that makes their day. Maybe you'll inspire somebody. He says, but every one of these people will miss something from their lives. Every one of them. I'm going, yeah, but pain, suffering, you know. And, and so while this argument is going back and forth for a long time, all of a sudden I'm feeling stuff going on in my body, right? Like, and all of a sudden it's like somebody took the, the paddles on the operating table and I'm on this mountaintop and all of a sudden it was like and I'm thrown right back into my naked body on the operating table I don't know close to eight hours later and they're sewing up my stuff and doing all this stuff except I got my eyes taped shut I got this tube down mm. my throat I can't talk I can't communicate my hands and everything everything's tied down and whatever. I don't know what they do, but I can't move. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But the anesthesia, it's 100% worn off. It's worn off. And there's part of me trying to say, hey, you know, and they got another 20, 30 minutes to go. I mean, they're putting my uh, ribs together and wiring them, literally wiring them up. And okay. then they're stapling them and, and then they're stitching here and they're cutting here and they're doing all that stuff. And inside my head, I'm going, wow, they promised me pain. But from the very moment that I came back, the anesthesia was gone. And then it took forever to close me up. And then they rolled me into a room and I still got my eyes closed shut. I still got the tube and I'm trying to wake up saying, in my mind, I'm going, hey, pull the tube out. Hey. <laughs> you know. Anyway, so that was 
that experience. But here's what made it believable. Two things happened after that. One, I get worse. This operation must get better. I get worse. I'm there over three weeks. I'm usually in modern America, you have open heart surgery. They kick you out four days, five days. They kick you out, go home, heal. No, I, I, I'm just five blood transfusions. I'm not doing good. And uh, so finally, they, it's, it's 11 o'clock at night or so, 10, 30, 11. And they're getting ready to roll me out of the hospital down to a gurney, take me downstairs for emergency procedure and do some stuff. And, and my phone at the bed rings, somebody calling me at my bedside. And they go, don't answer that. Don't. I said, no, no, I got to answer that. Of course, I sounded like, uh, em, uh, who's that? Uh, uh, one of the cartoon characters with a deep voice, Elmer Fudd. Anyway, <laughs> my voice was all raggedy. And so I insisted, and I was getting upset. They called him answer. So I answered the phone, and it's just, it's, the guy goes, this is Gornoff from India. And I go, yeah, how many Gornoffs do I know, right? It's just like, yeah, okay, he identified himself. And then he goes, you could skip a few beats, but don't give up heart. I go, what? And then repeated it, and I go, what? <laughs> what? And he says, he says, now, I just asked 100 people here to go up to the temple to pray for you. I told them I was praying for you and you'd be all right. Don't embarrass me. In other words, don't die. <laughs> I'm going, <laughs> oh, shit, right? So anyway, so then a couple days later, the other part of that prediction came up. And part of the prediction was a stupid prediction. I go, well, this is the dumbest prediction I've ever seen. When's this going to happen? The prediction was that I'd be, I'd be sitting or standing, I'd be someplace, and Lord Shiva, perhaps as Babaji, you know, was like Shiva and Babaji are one, you know, type thing, you know. But I would get anointed by raindrops or water or oil on my head, and, and I would know I was getting blessed by the one. And I said, yeah, okay. But that, you know, never happened. This is, you know, the next year. So I'm laying in bed, the hospital bed, and all of a sudden, I, I look up the foot of the bed, and there's Babaji. No shirt on. But this is in America. Babaji was wearing Levi's. Barefoot, bare-shirted, long black hair, shining skin, just like he got out of a, a, a swimming pool or something. But there he was. And he's at the foot of my bed, which is like six-something feet away from me, right my toes. And he's standing there, and yet his hands from there, it didn't seem strange at the time, but his hands were over the top of my head, and he's pouring oil and water, and he's chanting in some language. I had no clue what it was, but it was very soothing. And this is going on, and I'm thinking, I said, if I'm delusional, this is great. Keep it up. This is a beautiful thing, right? This, this I can handle this. I mean, if you can have a dream or a vision or, you know, Babaji's a good one, right? I thought, well, okay, nobody believed me because this is happening. I'm seeing it by myself, you know. So then I get out of the hospital. I'm home three, four days, and my daughter comes to visit me. And she says, you know, our old neighbor Dave was there uh, to visit you. Uh, and the same day that happened, right? And I said, no, he wasn't. I didn't see him. He says, oh, yeah, he came into the room to see you, but you had some crazy young Indian guy with no shirt on, barefoot, pouring stuff on your head, chanting some crazy stuff, and he was embarrassed for you, and he left. He thought it was funny. So there, somebody didn't believe any of that, nor any of that was going along, and he came in and saw exactly what was happening. Mm. So 
that was that experience, which was totally different than my first experience. That was my third experience. And then my near-death experience number two, which we can't, I can't talk. That happened coming back from Babaji's cave, which was. Uh, can you, uh, yeah, because I, I I heard about the Babaji cave one. Can can we please discuss that one as well? By the oh, way, first of by the way, before we continue, um, <laughs> this is all quite remarkable. We, we're talking about it as it's, it's very casual, um, but this is all very remarkable, very mystical stuff that's going on in your life. Your near death experiences are, are quite unique. What I find interesting about you and 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 your story is you seem reluctant about it in the sense that you're like, eh, it's good for fiction. Eh, it's good for stories. It's, it's not like you've drank the Kool-Aid as you will in regards to it. You're, you're still questioning it. You're still like, what's, what is this? And like, Oh, I, I, I have no pain. I'd rather go with the, the hot chick in the cloud. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. That's, I love, I love your storytelling in that yeah. sense because it's real. It sounds real. It doesn't sound very kind of like, you know, it's mystical, but yet with this real Western esque vibe to it. So I, I do appreciate that. So um, uh, l- tell me about your near death experience in Babaji's cave. Okay, let's go back to the 2959. Right, I- r- r- real quick, before we continue, because you and I are speaking about Babaji, like we know who he is. Can you give like a quick, like one, 60 second biography of Babaji and who he is? First off, no one's alive that could give you a full description of who he is, what he is, or what level he's at. Yogananda tried and introduced him to the Western world in Autobiography of Yogi. Mm-hmm. It's basically this avatar that's been here. Is probably, I've heard from the, the men that I met in the Himalayan mountains, they say he's been here since the beginning and formation of this world, the earth plane, you know, and it was still bubbling over. And, and he came down and he's been, he's been assigned this group of souls that are, because there's souls everywhere, but the group of souls that come to this earth plane, this is his, this is his flock of sheep, basically. And he's been around since the beginning of time. And all, all these great ones, whether it's Jesus or Buddha or somebody, someplace along the line, he's visited them and given them meditation techniques. He's given them help. He's been there in the ether or in person. And so periodically over thousands of years, there's been numerous stories of his appearance. And actual, even perhaps even some lifetimes where he took a human body for a lifetime too. So it's really, there's no pinpoint exactly. But All that's- I know is this, this being looks, I've had, I've had four experiences I talk about, the others I don't. So let's put it that way. But the four experiences I talk about, um, it's always youthful. It's always like he's early 20s. Yeah. Uh, greatest skin in the world. I mean, the guy's just, he's in shape. and But it's always not a big, huge conversation. It's always about direct to the point connection. It's just direct. It's an energy transfer. It's like, well, for example, before I get to the story of the near death, if you got a couple of minutes, sure. this wall behind me on the other side of that wall, there's a, there's a bedroom that I stay when I'm sick and everything. Uh, and I had my, this was in 2009, I think, or 10. I had a, my first surgery with it. They removed most of my nose. And that's, my nose has been cut off three times, in case you're wondering. But the first time it was cut off, it was this big, ugly hole, and it was terrible. And, uh, and, and, and they didn't fix it till the next day at another surgery. So I went around 
big hole in my face for a day, you know, and I had bandages on and it was bleeding. It was painful, painful, painful. And they finished cutting it off. I went home and, and they gave me these pills to take, you know, uh, oxy, whatever they are. And I go, I hate these things. I, you know, I don't need these. I can use my mind. But the pain got so bad, I took a half a pill. And I thought, well, I'll take a pill. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I put it in my mouth and just as I swallowed it, pain went away. So I, it wasn't the pill. It was me. I knew I didn't need it. So I go upstairs. It was the daytime and I slept for about four hours. I woke up. My pillow was soaking wet and I thought I'd been crying. I go, what a wimp, man. My crying was a pain that bad. What's going on? So I come and tell my wife, I said, yeah, yeah. The sheets, the pillows, everything's wet. I must have really been bawling like a baby. She goes up there. She brings down these blood-soaked pillowcase, pillows, throw them all away. Blood, blood everywhere. Right? I've been bleeding. Went to bed that night. And around that bewitching hour, that spiritual hour between 3.15, 4 o'clock, you know, that, you know, that time of day, four-ish, the, uh, the Shiva hour. All of a sudden, I'm awoken by light. I mean, bright, like floodlights, light, greater, should have blinded me light. The room was just vibrating. Light, the light was vibrating. It was that great of white. And so I'm laying there and I got patches over this. And I got an eye, my eyes, you know, only one eye's open. It's got patches and everything. And I feel that, remember that one million grandmothers? They came back. One million grandmothers hugging me again. I go, oh, this is crazy, man. This is beautiful. Actually, that's an exaggeration because I had no thought process. It was like, it's come, it's like, yeah, okay. We're having, yeah, it's happening again. It's all right. And I see this arm, bare arm up to about the shoulder and a hand come out from that wall on the other side, right where my thumb's at. There was a hand coming out on the other side, uh, extending right over my bed and a hand covered my nose, my face, my eye, where I had hundreds of stitches. And it was like being held by the hand of God. It was just for immense amount of time, I don't know what, but it was beautiful, right? And then I, it was over. I got up and my wife drove me. It was six o'clock in the morning, my surgery. I had to drive all the way to Folsom. So I was just up, boom, I get in there and the doctor's telling my wife, we're going to cut a triangle on his head. We're going to flip that skin over. We're going to put it over. We're going to take stuff from his nose and, and here and there. We're going to rebuild this thing. And we'll need seven surgeries to get this thing back. We're going to, because, you know, you got to graph all that stuff. And my wife's just going, oh, man. I mean, it was scared her. And I said, well, do whatever you got to do, doc. So I go in there and I come out of the surgery. And my wife's just staring at me. And I go, oh, boy, it must really be bad, right? <laughs> so she gets sends for the doc. Doc, it's just... What'd you do? He didn't cut his forehead. You didn't do this. He says, well, you know what? I've been doing this surgery for over 30 years. And the way I did it was the way I told you. And he had a graph showing what he was going to do and everything. And he says, I studied it and took pictures. And then I got in there. I got inspired to do something totally different. And I took a chunk of his shoulder and I rebuilt it all from his shoulder. And I didn't need to take it anywhere off his face. And I left his ears alone. And I used didn't need the cartilage. 
So I never did it that way before. So anyway, so it started healing right away. I mean, right away. So that, that night he gave me a bottle of more pain medicine. Like, I don't need it, doc. No, no, you're going to need it. You know, I said, I don't need it. So I go to bed that night and I have the same exact repeat experience. Lay it in bed. That Shiva hour comes, room lights up, hand comes out, puts it over my face. I'm embraced. Ten days later, I go to get the stitches out. And the doctor is kind of mumbling and he goes, what, what happened? I, I go, what's wrong? He says, he says, I've been doing this again. He goes, three decades. I've never had skin grow over stitches in 10, skin grow over stitches in 10 days. Wow. In other words, skin, the skin grew, new skin, and covered all the stitches. He had to really work at it to get some stitches out. Some dissolved, but he had to take some out. He'd never seen that. So then a few days later, I get a call. I get invited to this wedding. This, that guru was at the ashram, was at the wedding. We're sitting at a wedding table. And he looks at me and he goes, right away, Bill. He says, what happened to you the other night? You got now he's got my attention, right? Okay, I didn't tell anybody what's going on here. He says, That wasn't a vision, wasn't your imagination, wasn't a dream. That was the big boss coming to heal you. Now he calls the big boss Babaji. That's his nickname for him, the big boss Babaji. That was Babaji. So he said that in front of about nine people, and I'm going, So I guess the cat's out of the bag. So that's one reason I tell that story is because I got permission to tell that story. I tell the story in a hospital because it was witnessed by somebody. And so I tell that story. There's other Babaji stories. Uh, I, I tell the one about at the ashram. That's an interesting one. But there's other ones. It's private. You got to be. You got to be told it's okay. And being right, so, a big Irish blabbermouth, I get told a lot of stories to tell. So, so all right. So what happened at the uh, Babaji's cave? Okay, I knew we were going someplace with this. I'm glad one of us is on track here. So one of us <laughs> obviously is not an Irishman. So I won't point out who. So I'm going to Babaji's cave because I read the book when I was in the hospital, eight, nine years old. Autobiography Yogi, I read it. I'm going. How, I'm sorry, you were eight or nine years old? Yeah, and I read that book. And I focused on Babaji's cave. It was like, when I get to be an adult, I'm going to go to Bob's. And I tried to go to Bob's cave when I was 18, 19, 20, 21. I got out of the service, 22. Uh, everything I did, nothing ever led there. It just never worked out. It just, until I was just getting ready to be 59 years old. And I remember from my visions, that's as far as my life went, was right around 59. You know, and I'm going, well, 59, maybe that's why I'm in it. I better go. So if I'll be 59 in March, and I leave in uh, November or so to go to India in, in the winter. And because uh, I figured, you know, if I'm going to die, I've got to go see Bob's Cave. So I go there. I finally get there. It's a real arduous trip. I mean, it's really hard to find the place and find the people. And there's no guides to take me because there was a... a, a the YSS, which is SRF's uh, Indian group, they were having a convocation in Ranchi, another big city, and everybody left but one one guy. And he goes, I can't give you any guides. He says, I'll tell you how to get to that. I'll tell you how to get to the cave. Said, you'll, never, you'll never find it. And I said, no, 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 no. You tell me how to get there. So he writes this 
piece of paper, chicken scratch lines. Go go down the road when the road doesn't feel like it's gonna go to the left or the right. Well, there's three roads up there. Take one of them to the left, or maybe it's to the right. That's the kind of instructions I had. And then and then you get to the end of that road, and then if it feels right, stop and start walking. Then you'll see some trails. Pick one that looks like that's the. I said, I'm going anyway, so I go. Me and my buddy, and we travel up this road, and. We leave our driver in the car. We start walking up to Babaji's cave. Now, if you've ever been to Babaji's cave, uh, it is. You need a guide. You really do. We got lost. We're wandering around. It should just be an hour and a half or so, two hours up there. I mean, we're like four hours going up. So I knew we were lost. We finally see the temple. They actually built the temple up there, Babaji's temple. And it's got a, a locked door and a locked gate on everything. The, the, the ashram gave us the keys to all that stuff. We had the keys to the cave. The keys. And we were all by ourselves. We had the whole place to ourselves, which is rare. I get up there and my heart is just pounding. I, I know I'm having a heart attack. It's, it's just bad. And I'm having trouble with lightheadedness. And we didn't take any water. We didn't take any coats. We didn't take a flashlight. We didn't take any matches. We didn't take any candy bars. We're just out for a day hike, right? And this is the Himalayan mountains. We're up eight, 9,000 feet or whatever it is. I have no clue how high it is. But these big mountains are casting dark shadows too, so it's getting a little cold. But I've been sweating. And then I thought, I'm no, I'm okay. I'm not sweating anymore. I'm totally dry. <laughs> yeah, number one sign of dehydration, right? You don't sweat anymore. So we finally get to the cave. And I'm sitting inside Babaji's cave. And my heart just pop, pop, pop. And I reach into my pocket and I pull out this list. I had four typewritten pages, number 10 Adisha on both sides. And I just had one space between each name. And I wrote down everybody I could remember in my life that I was going to give to Babaji is to offer prayers for. I had, I had stuff on there. I didn't remember somebody's name. I'd say the guy in the army with me and at uh, Kuchi, the guy that, uh, you know, sure. the baker on the corner or whatever it was, uh, uh, the homeless kid, uh, you know, the uh, foster kid, the the boss I had, the enemies I had, the person that hated me, whatever it was, I put them all down. I had all these, I figured. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. God knows who they are. Babaji knows who they are. I could see them in my mind. That's all accounted. Babaji would know who they were. So I had all these names. And I pulled the list out and I mentally read the list. Took, took a long time. And then I eventually took that list when I was done on the Ganges River. And I read them there. And then at sunrise, I lit a match to it and burned it to ashes. And I dropped it on the river. So that's how I consecrated that list. So all these people, family, friends, enemies, that will never go to Babaji's cave. I took the essence of, of their energy and who they were to Babaji's cave. That was my gift to them. Friend and foe, it didn't matter. Anyway, so I'm in there, I'm doing this. I'm feeling really dizzy, I'm really feeling terrible. We leave, my friend is following me, which is a mistake. I, I get lost. We're standing on a cliff. There's a 30-foot cliff, drops off, and I collapse. I go, and instead of falling straight 30 feet, which would have been a little more bruising, uh, there was several, a couple of outcroppings. So I'd hit a ledge that was two or three feet out. You know, and so about every 10 feet, I'd hit boom, 
And then boom. And then I end up on a rock boulder laying on my back. The boulder is about the size of a Volkswagen bug. Mm. And I'm looking up at the sky, kind of like, you know, when the Simpsons cartoon starts, the Simpsons, and it shows the sky. Well, it was kind of like the Simpsons. And I'm looking up at the sky and there's the clouds and stuff. And, and I realize I'm moving towards the clouds. And I realize that my heart is not pounding anymore. It's doing nothing. There is no breath. There's no pulse. There's no pounding. There's nothing. And I look down and I see this body laying down there. And I, oh, I, I, I've seen that before. Okay. Don't eat it. That's just my body. I've been to Babaji's cave. What else do I need? You know? So I'm floating up there really enjoying myself. I'm ready to just keep going. And then I look down there and I see a, a cobra. Now I tell the story being a good Irishman. I was saying it's a large, large cobra. How large? It was, you know, I think my wife reminds me the first time he told that story, it was only six and a half feet. Uh, I think the last time I told it was 12 to 15 feet. It was a huge. Was a, I never saw the head, the tail together. It was came out of the grass, crawled over my legs, and went into the grass, and it was the body was still moving. So I never saw the head and the tail. So I you so estimate. Just as good as exaggeration as saying it was six. I don't know. Mm. But it excited me because I love snakes. There's something about snakes. And you know, snakes are the symbol of the kundalini energy. And it's a symbol of all that stuff. Um, and it was instantaneously my love for that cobra. Love for the cobra. I wanted to, I wanted to hold it. Instantaneously pulled me back into my body. Cook. Got back my body and then I jumped up from the rock and my friends watching me from up there thinking, what is this crazy guy doing, right? And then I'm grabbing onto the snake. This is not a tame snake, not a performance snake, hasn't been milked, got all its teeth. It's just a wild cobra and it's trying to get away from me. And I, I got my hands like this around it because I can't get my fingers to touch. The middle of its body, I can't get my hands all the way around it. So it's like this. I have no clue how big that was, but that's that's that's, pretty, that's a pretty that's, big cobra. That's a big cobra, right? And uh, of course, what's bigger in my mind? Going, wow, that's huge, right? Anyway, but I'm excited. I want to love it. There's no feel of danger, and I'm chasing this thing with my sandals and bare feet through grass that's about two feet tall, not knowing exactly where it's at. And I keep touching it, grabbing it, touching it until it ends up slithering behind a a, a rock where a small, about a nine foot waterfall is coming down, just a trickle. And when I see the waterfall and I see the snake hiding behind it, looking at me, curled up, I stop. And then the part of the book in the autobiography where uh, Larry Masha materialized this castle, you know, this beautiful palace there. And then afterwards, he's told to go down this little waterfall and, and wash. Nobody knew where it was at. And that was the thought I had. I said, wait a minute. This is where Larry Masha came and bathed afterwards. And so I, I didn't try to grab the cobra. The cobra was at home behind the rock watching me. And I'm having those thoughts that I'm just, I'm feeling this oneness with the cobra. It was really beautiful. So meanwhile, when I fell down the hill as well, I got some kind of, I got like a poison, oak, ivy, oak, poison oak type stuff in India. It's different stuff, but same itchy stuff, big welts. So by the time I finally get back to the ashram, I got welts all over my body. 
I got bruises. I got cuts from falling. My shirt's torn. I just got a T-shirt on, and it's now cold in the Himalayan nights, right? It's getting to be dark, and I'm frozen. And the guy asked me how my trip, I found it, and I told him the whole story, everything happened, the near-death experience, you know, the fall and the heart attacks, everything. And then this woman interrupts. She says, she says you know what they say? And I said, what do they say? She says, those that have the most arduous journey to Babaji's cave get the greatest blessing. So I'm thinking, let's say I died. I fell down at a heart attack. Like anyway, so that was that. So I come back to America. This happened like in, before Thanksgiving. I get home for Thanksgiving. I'm having heart problems and things are going on. I don't do nothing about anything except I had this big, all of a sudden I had a big bump on my forehead. Just like a month after I get home. And I go in and they operate on my forehead, spiritual eye. And they pull out this big cancerous tumor. And I just thought, instead of being like, oh, my God, it was like, how wonderful is that? You go to find the guru on the mountaintop and, and, and find spiritual answers and joy and bliss in India. And you come back and they remove the cancer from your spiritual life. I mean, so symbolic, right? It's like, mm -hmm. take it. right? So then the next month, I, I finally have a major heart attack again. And I fall down in the garage. And, anyway, so I end up driving myself to the doctor. I told my wife, I feel different. We're going to see the doctor. I'm having a full-blown heart attack. I drive seven miles, look for a parking spot in emergency. If you ever try to find a parking spot in emergency, there ain't any. You got to go to another parking lot and come back. I did. I get there. There's 20 people, 18, 20 people in line ahead of me at the emergency window. I wait 20 minutes. I get up there. She says, fill out this form. Okay. I go, I sit down, I fill out. I go in another line with about eight people. She gets it finally after half hour I'm in there at least and she looks at it and she goes says here you think you're having a heart attack I said yeah I'm having a heart attack right now she goes yeah let me be the judge of that sit down she gets out her stethoscope and she goes next thing you know there's this blue light going she goes code blue code blue code blue next thing you know they're throwing me out of green she says sir you're having a heart attack I said yeah that's why I came in <laughs> so the doctor comes in and, and of course he wants to operate do all these things and stuff and i go i said i said so i started complaining i go wait a minute i've been a vegetarian for 60 oh i said almost 60 years i'll be i'll be 59 years old in, in, in the next week or two right so i'm almost 59 and i said i've been a vegetarian i don't do booze i don't do drugs i don't smoke i don't do sugar i don't do salt i don't do tobacco i don't do caffeine nicotine nothing right Meditate. I look at my body. And here's 2959. Remember that? The doctor looks at me coldly and goes, you know, sir, with your genetic makeup, he says, I would have guessed you'd been dead by 29 instead of being almost 59 next week. And I'm going, 29, 59. Because I almost died at 59 and I almost... 29 something else happened. It was more of a spiritual change. And now astrology, here's astrology where it comes in. When I was born in San Francisco, there was a gentleman, a friend of mine, Paul H. O'Brien Jr. And I was William H. McDonald Jr. Both Irishmen, both born in the same hospital within an hour of each other. Our mothers were sharing a room together. But we didn't know that until we got into uh, a school 
40 miles away from San Francisco in a classroom in the fourth grade, and he mentions, and we talk, wait, you're, so I looked at that, and I go, what happened to him? So just before all this happened, uh, I asked the class reunion committee, you know, where my friend Paul O'Brien was at, because I wanted to see him, and they go, oh, Bill, he died. Died just before he was 59. So his astrology chart showed 59, he checked out. But he smoked, he drank, he ate meat, didn't meditate. Whole different path. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I took a different path and I survived. So anyway, that's the story of the 2959. That's the story of the three near-death experiences, which are much more detailed than I could talk all day on each one individually, but mm. as an overview. And yet, none of those were as spiritually earth-shaking to me as my samadhi experience in the rainbow body, which we can talk about anytime you want. Well, I was going to, you know, it's so funny because I was one of the last questions I want to ask you, if you can explain what the rainbow body is. For, because it's it is a uh, it is a it's a Tibetan concept it's a it's a Hindu concept it is it is is one of these Eastern philosophy uh, parts of Eastern philosophy it's Eastern religions uh, and I've just started to hear about the rainbow body recently it's so funny because all the books I've been reading lately the rainbow body kept coming up and you just mentioned it so I think it's important for you to explain what the rainbow body is historically and how did you how did it happen with you. First off, I'm a late bloomer when it comes to understanding what a rainbow body was. I was having rainbow body experiences, thinking it was just some kind of interesting way to astral travel, which was not. It's a whole different thing. Rainbow body means, like in, in Tibet, when the high Dalai Lamas and these great masters die, they, their body collapses and actual people will see. Mm -hmm. Those are highly evolved. They will actually see this rainbow like filament just shoot out of their body. Just boom, and, and they travel. And those souls will live in those, that's their body. That's and they will travel, will travel. And that's what I thought it was traveling. It's not traveling, it's expansion, another whole concept. So this rainbow body concept is you're not identified with the human body anymore. You're not even identified with an astral body anymore, or an angel body anymore. You're at this light, L-I-G-H-T, you're at this light body thing. And uh, and rainbow body seems to be one of the essences of that. Uh, and the great ones, that's how they leave this world. They, whether you see it or not, this mean it's there, and they that's how their soul exits. That's all. I I'm not an expert at it. I've experienced it, but I'm a child. You know, a child could experience a lot of things. They could they could they could watch brain surgery, but they couldn't tell you how to do it. Okay, so. I've been in the experience, all these neat things happen. I go, what? So what happened was, you got time for one last story. One last story, sir. Okay, because you know, you got you to roll out the, uh, the the stop signs when it comes to me. I just get going. So keep it, keep it under 10 minutes and I think we'll be okay. Okay, so I, I had this picture of Yogananda, which I don't have set up my office right now because I'm remodeling. But it's a, the, the picture was taken as last photo taken before he, he died. Uh, in LA, and it's a beautiful black and white picture, just really neat. My, and and I had this picture for decades and decades, meditation room, everything else. 
So when I was much younger, I was in my 20s. And I was I was working, not have to do all my meditation after my wife and family were down. You don't meditate while you get family time, right? So, so I was cutting the ends of my sleep off, you know, going to bed two hours later than everybody, getting up an hour or two before everybody else, which just left about four hours of sleep in the middle. But I do these intense meditations like hour and a half, two hours, you know, chanting and everything. So I finished this one, and I was just feeling really, really light, literally light. When I finished one, and I went to bed, and I got that on my nightstand, and I roll over, and I'm looking to picture Yogananda. And for those that follow anybody, if it's a picture of Jesus, well, a painting, a drawing of Jesus, not too many photos out there that are autographed and viable. But uh, but if you, if you have a holy image and you're looking at it, You'll notice the phenomenon when you look in the eyes of a, of, a, of a painting of a spiritual person or a photo. If you look deep enough, you'll see movement. You'll see life. And so I'm looking into Yogananda's eyes and he comes alive. It's like there's movement. There's, there's that. And then all of a sudden, shebang, I'm out of my body. It's just rainbow me just goes whoosh. And I'm traveling See, when I first told the story 35, 40 years ago, I was traveling, you know, it was faster than the speed of thought and light and everything. And it was like, it was like Star Trek with all the stuff going by and everything. And so I told the story that way to a long time till about a decade ago, I, I, I woke up having this intense dream and a realization that I could have been traveling because I was going every direction. All directions were coming at me which means the only thing that could have been happening was my consciousness was expanding. You know, it's going out. It's expanding and becoming one with everything. And that's what was happening during this experience, trying to make this short story. Um, Time-wise, I would say I was looking at time in the 100, 200, 300 billion year category. That kind of piece of pie. And why I'm traveling with this rainbow. It was a rainbow body, but it wasn't just my body. It was like my pinky or a cell in my pinky. It's a part of this whole body. I'm its rainbow body, right? So <clears throat> it was like, there's this group of, of like souls holding this rainbow group together. And it's like, we all had a purpose. And that purpose was spiritual and inspirational development of planets this part of the cosmos and periodically it's crazy i know i'm just going to go it's just crazy talk but it was like periodically members family members of this group would incarnate to earth or someplace else they would incarnate and their job was to incorporate spiritual inspiration just as this rainbow body was passing through the great cosmos and everything. There was other rainbow bodies with science, medicine, philosophy, politics, um, inventors. I mean, all these kind. Of, it's like, we're the great ones. So these guys would come and their job is to help philosophy. This guy, other job is to help science. Art, music, math, right? Yeah, you got the idea. But the one I was with seemed to be, this was like the ultimate group. This was the group that was 
no, this, this is your task. And, and this task is going to go on to the end of mankind, what end of this creation, this group. And so when somebody leaves that group, they're supported by the people in that group, whatever that meant. I, I knew, I'm telling you to it because when you come, when I came back trying to remember everything, 90% was taken away, dulled, and then trying to interpret things like, you know, like, what's that sound? What's that sound? Everybody look, what's going down? No, you couldn't tell. Sounds were different. The, the colors were, the, it's like trying to tell, trying to tell somebody that never tasted an orange what an orange tastes like. Right. They wouldn't know unless they, you compare it to something else that they've had and they still wouldn't know. Right. Trying to tell somebody what a color or sound was. So anyway, you became one with the sounds, one with the colors. And meanwhile, I'm seeing the beginning of this creation period. I'm seeing the end of it. And everything is just on schedule. I'm just rolling until I remembered my wife and two children. That was it. I remembered, I remembered the I, the me, and the history of this lifetime. And it was instantaneous. I was back in my body, like 2,000 pound weight. Boom. And I just started bawling like a baby. I thought I was crazy, but the tears were rolling down. I, I cried for an hour or two. It was just so bad to be back. But it wasn't until I remembered my connections to this world that happened. So we talked about that another time. But there you go. Uh, Your subject. Bill, it, it, this has been a, a remarkable conversation. Um, I, I thank you so much for sharing these amazing stories. And hopefully they inspire people and uh, not only entertain as well, but inspires them to look deeper inside of themselves uh, at, at uh, their own their own spiritual journey. I'm going to ask you a few questions. Ask all my guests. It's kind of like rapid fire questions. Uh, what is your definition of a good life? In the end, what did you add to this creative world? What did you add to anybody's life? Did you love everybody? So at the end, it's not about who loves you because that could be influenced by money, fame, fortune. Not who loves you, but who did you love? So to be successful, in a way, there's an ego on my part also says, to be successful, I hope I'm missed. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um, how do you define God? To me, there's only one. And they mean, what do you mean one? No, there's just one. There's no time. There's no space. There's no this, that. The, it's just the oneness. You call it maybe consciousness, but it's just oneness. There is nothing. There's no separation between us. Only in our minds is there separation. I think I'm Bill McDonald. You think you're Alex. So therefore, we're separated. Even on the screen here, we're separated. But in reality, there's... When we awake, we know that we're God. There's no, there's, there's no, as you retain this memory of who you are, there's separation. So no, God is not a person, a gender, uh, Jesus, a Buddha. There's only love. So if anything's definitive, I'd say whatever love is, that's God. And what is the ultimate purpose of life? To love and to serve. Without question. 
And my friend, where can people find out more about you and the work that you're doing? Okay, first off, let's get a plug in. Yes. Uh, this is my book about my trips to India and everything. Uh, covers about a decade of my life and my third death experience and some really interesting people I've met. This is my autobiography. These books are available on Amazon. Now, if you live in a foreign country or you want to speak Spanish, I got my books in Spanish. I got my books in German. They're coming out in other languages. Bottom line is I'm out worldwide starting in 2023. Uh, I will be in India giving workshops and lectures. I hope to be in the UK, into Scotland, Ireland, Wales, England, uh, maybe Germany. I will be in Syracuse, New York in April, giving a free workshop and a talk in April. And I'll be giving a free workshop and talk in Salt Lake City in February and other cities as they come up. I'm just taking it a piece at a time. I can't schedule too far in advance because honestly, I have operations about every other month that I just, it's crazy. So I have this gift of cancer. It keeps giving and it's blessing my life with great experiences and great stories. No complaints. Bill, it is, uh, it has been an absolute pleasure and honor speaking to you, my friend. Uh, I wish you nothing but the best with your medical journeys that you have in front of you. And thank you again for the work that you're doing and helping the world as you are my friend. So thank you so much again. All right. God bless. I want to thank Bill so much for coming on the show and sharing his journey with all of us. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, including how to get his book, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 136. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.